Good morning. It's good to be with you. And we're returning to our series on the parables of the kingdom. And this morning it's the parable of the net. And uh, the reading is in Matthew 13, starting at verse 47. And I'm reading it from the New Living Translation to begin with. Matthew 13, 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a fishing net that is thrown into the water and gathers fish of every kind. When the net is full, they drag it up onto the shore, sit down, sort the good fish into crates, and throw the bad ones away. That is the way it will be at the end of the world. The angels will come and separate the wicked people from the godly, throwing the wicked into the fire. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. One of those old expressions, isn't it? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. And it's the kind of language that Jesus used a number of times He didn't mince his words. The professional whingers of our day would be up in arms about some of the stuff he said. But this is the King of Kings speaking. And we do well to pay heed to his words. I think they gave me this parable because my dad had a fish business, a fish and poultry business. Used to uh, serve the hotels and many of the cafes around town. Uh, He was also, ironically, uh, a keen fisherman in the sense that he would put his waders on and go fishing in the Ribble and the Hodder north of Preston. And he caught lots of trout. And on one occasion, a salmon. Um, I might come back to that later. So this is an appropriate picture for Jesus to use because, of course, much of his ministry was round about the Sea of Galilee. And indeed, four of his 12 original disciples worked in the fishing industry. Simon, Andrew, James, and John were all busy with their fishing business when Jesus came along and called them to follow him. And there were two occasions when Jesus used their fishing experience to test their obedience levels. Once was when he was first getting to know them, or they were first getting to know him, uh, Luke chapter 5, and he used the boat of Simon Peter as a pulpit, just getting away from the land a little way, because, of course, voices travel better over water than over land. And when he'd finished teaching... He asked Simon to take his boat further out onto the lake and throw out the nets. (laughs) Now Simon had fished all night, caught nothing. He was the professional. He knew when to fish and when not to fish. It was his livelihood. I wonder what went through his mind when Jesus said, throw out your nets for a catch. But there was something about this man Jesus that obviously 
registered with Simon. Because when Jesus said that to him, Simon's response was this, because you say so, I will let down the nets. And the result of his obedience was that there was so much fish that they had to get James and John in the other boat to come alongside, and both their boats were close to sinking because there was so much fish. That's in Luke chapter 5. The other occasion was after the resurrection. You can read about that one in John 21. Um, seven of the disciples, led again by Simon Peter, they'd caught nothing from a night's fishing. And as they came back towards land, a man called out to them, haven't you caught any fish? And when they said no, he says, well, throw your net onto the right side of the boat. And again, I don't know whether they hesitated or not, but they did throw the net. And again, a miraculous catch of fish. Obedience brought results. It actually records in John 21, there were 153 large fish, which always prompts me to ask, who bothered to count them? And why? But they did. I suppose it adds a touch of authenticity to the record in the gospel. Anyway, they realized it was this man on the shore was the resurrected Jesus, and he invites them to come and have some breakfast with him, and then he reinstates Simon Peter to ministry. So on both occasions, Luke 5, John 21, obedience brings results. Isn't that always the way with Jesus? He says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, and all kinds of wonderful things happen. A little later, he sent them out in twos, go and preach the gospel, heal the sick, cast out demons, raise the dead. And they did. They came back with wonderful stories and rejoiced in what they'd seen God doing. And here, let down your nets for a catch. When all their professional experience said, don't do it, but they did. And the miracle happened before their eyes. The parable itself needs to be seen primarily as a reference to the ministry of Jesus. He was throwing out the kingdom message to all and sundry. Some accepted, many rejected. And we need to look at the kinds of people who became his disciples. How many of us would have chosen, for example, a Matthew? a despised, hated tax collector. Was he a likely character? Or a Judas? Or a Simon Peter, who denied knowing him? They were a mixed bunch. The net reaches out to all and sundry. And you know what? It doesn't just pull in the nice, respectable, well-behaved people. We might prefer it if, if that was the case, but it ain't, is it? Uh, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The problem with the righteous people is that they can all too easily become self-righteous, like the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the very people who invoked the righteous anger of Jesus himself. 
The parables, taken as a whole, highlight the fact that kingdom will always have an element of mystery. There are things to be discovered. Now, human reason says those who behave well will be accepted and the bad guys won't. But Jesus underlined the truth that the kingdom message is not grasped by human reason. It becomes clear by divine revelation. It's proclaimed to all that it's understood and grasped and received only by those who believe and respond positively, even with their faults and failings. An obvious example is the man who was crucified on the cross alongside Jesus. He was a bad guy. And to this bad guy, Jesus said, you'll be with me in paradise today. And if the original disciples were a mixed bunch, it shouldn't be a surprise to find that the church is also not made up of perfect people. Did you know that? There's a saying, isn't there, if you ever find the perfect church, don't join it because it won't be perfect any longer. As you read Paul's letters, you soon realize that the church in the first century was far from perfect. In his letters, he always commends before he criticizes, but some of the stuff that they were into would make your hair curl. But as an apostle with a pastoral heart, he wasn't prepared to let them go on living at a mediocre level. There were some pretty bad fish in those congregations. Let's face it, we're all a work in progress, aren't we? Paul wrote this to the church in Philippi. Being confident, he said, of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1 verse 6. Eventually, yes, there will be a spotless bride. That's how the church is presented before the returning king. The net is drawn in and the good and the bad fish are separated. That's later. That's not yet. But there will be a spotless bride. Scripture tells us that God's kingdom rule will finally be established, undeniably. The whole world will recognize the power of the living God Every knee will bow to King Jesus. Every tongue will confess him as Lord. But we can't sit around waiting for that to happen. In a measure, kingdom has already come. Often it's in a hidden form, working secretly within men and women, like the yeast or the leaven that we've heard about in previous weeks. The kingdom has arrived, but not yet to the point where the whole of society is changed for the better. But you and I, as kingdom people, can make an individual impact on society, as it is mixture of good and bad, the separation is in the future. In Matthew 7, verse 21, we read these words of Jesus. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. There are plenty of people around who can talk a good game. 
But when it comes down to it, obedience to the king is what separates the good fish from the bad. And that leads to another important point. In this parable, it's very clear Jesus did not allow for universalism. There's a common assumption amongst lots of non-Christians, but sadly some Christians as well, that a God of love won't ultimately reject anyone. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus was very clear. Dave Gregg was very clear when he spoke about the parable of the wheat and the weeds. There will be a separation. There will be a division between wheat and weeds, between sheep and goats, between children of light and children of darkness, between good fish and bad fish. This is the language that Jesus used. So we can forget the romanticized images of the bright blue yonder where everyone is accepted. It ain't going to be like that. You can trace the theme of God's judgment all the way through Scripture. God is a loving Heavenly Father. He is also a righteous judge. We need to keep the balance in our thinking and our minds. There will be a day of judgment. Abraham got it right. God was about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham pleaded with God. Even He said even if it's the tiniest minority of godly people in those two cities, far be it from you, he said, to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And the answer to that question is yes. He is a God of righteous judgment. There is a day of judgment. The good news is this. If you have already submitted your life to King Jesus, if you're living the kingdom life now, your day of judgment is behind you. Your account is settled in advance. And if there's anyone watching this, listening to this, who hasn't yet, taken Jesus as your Lord and King, then your judgment day can be today. Let me ask you quite bluntly, what do you make of Jesus Christ? If you agree to let him forgive you of all your sin, if you repent, turn away from your past life, you allow him to come personally into your life as the boss, the Lord, the King, then you will from today onwards be counted among the good fish. And that future day of judgment holds no terrors for you. It will, in fact, be behind you. Now, just to avoid any confusion here, Scripture mentions another day of judgment. We should probably give it another title, maybe day of reward. It's the time when those who have already given their lives to Jesus are rewarded for all that they've done for the kingdom. But that's not our focus today. Folks, we have the privilege and responsibility of being net throwers and seed sowers. Now, 50 years ago, crowds in this country flocked to big venues around the country to hear Billy Graham. 
I'm not sure they would do that in the present circumstances, even uh, if we didn't have the COVID problems. What seems to be more effective these days is one-to-one -one conversations. And somewhere along the line, they may lead to, say, an alpha course, something of that sort. But whatever the method, we can all be seed sowers and net throwers. Here's some more good news. When we become subjects of the king, we also become his children. I will never be a child of Queen Elizabeth II, although I am her subject. But when I became a subject of King Jesus, John 1.12 says, To all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Isn't that wonderful? Children of the King of Kings. And then Paul picks up on the same theme. He says, now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Did you get that? We are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means that if we are caught up in that net, if we are living the kingdom life, we have access to everything that Jesus had access to in his earthly ministry. Everything. We have free admission to the treasure house, the powerhouse that we call heaven. We can tap into all the wisdom and revelation that there is in this wonderful book. We can have a relationship day by day with the Holy Spirit, the one who came to earth when Jesus went back to be with the Father. The Holy Spirit, always on hand to guide to teach, to correct, to encourage. Staying in touch and in tune with the Holy Spirit enables us to make a difference in people's lives and to have a godly influence on society around us. The Holy Spirit also takes us beyond human resources into a realm where we can bring supernatural solutions to people's problems because signs, wonders, and miracles are part of the package. That's our inheritance, folks. The inheritance of the good fish drawn in by the net. The dragnet pulls us close to the cross and then enables us to embrace the fullness of resurrection life. John says, sorry, Jesus says in John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will obey what I command you. <laughs> now, there's, there's no big stick implied in that. It's not, oh, you know, you will obey. No, there's no domineering insistence here. He's saying that if your love for Jesus is genuine, it will automatically follow that you will want to do the things that please him. A bit like the teenage boy whose mother is tired of telling him to tidy his room comb his hair, have a shower more than once a fortnight. And suddenly, he falls for a girl. And oh, the change. Suddenly, he's showering twice a day. He's using the hair gel and the deodorant by the gallon, and nothing is out of place in his bedroom. If you love someone, you make changes. You do the things that will please the person you love. 
That's the kind of obedience that Jesus is looking for. Another characteristic of the good fish is that they are true worshippers. John 4 verse 23 says this. The true worshippers will worship in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. Ponder on that for a moment. God is actually positively looking for genuine worshippers. It's not just a matter of turning up and singing a few choruses, is it? We're talking about true worship. It's not just people who sing or say the right words. It's people whose heart is constantly seeking God, constantly sensitive to the nudges and the whispers of the Spirit, constantly honoring the Lord Jesus with thankful hearts. Those who are children of the King and co-heirs with Christ will be like Gideon's trumpeters and Jehoshaphat's singers. We haven't time to look at those stories, but do you remember the vital part that they played? Bringing about the victory. They were worshippers. And God promised victory in those two very difficult situations. And who was in the vanguard? It was the worshippers. Judges 7, 2 Chronicles 20. Have a look at them sometime, not now. But it, the Gideon and Jehoshaphat both saw and responded to God and saw the need to put the singers, the worshippers, at the front, in the vanguard, praising God, worshipping God, giving glory to God. And then that was the entry point for God to move in power and bring amazing victories. Let me ask you, do you really want to see people astonished in our day by the amazing power of God? I certainly do. We're to be salt in society. We're to be light in our neighborhood. We are to be those who pray with conviction for situations to change. And we are to be those who praise God with thankful hearts so that he can release the supernatural resources of heaven make a difference, a real difference in people's lives. The world around us is teeming with metaphorical fish, good uns and bad uns. We can't always tell the difference. It, that's not our job, is it? We've no right to be mentally giving marks out of 10 for people who don't behave exactly the same as I do. Remember Jesus said, don't judge or you will be judged. Our job is to be net throwers and seed sowers. I read the other day that in the city of London, there are 110 livery companies. These are companies of tradespeople. Um, and they're all called the worshipful company of uh, greengrocers or nurses or cordwainers or even fishmongers. Hallelujah. Um, the worshipful company. And I think maybe we should change the name of the church. We should be known as the worshipful company of seed sowers and net throwers. That trips off the tongue, doesn't it? <laughs> you see, there are lots of ways to catch fish. You can go on a beach and throw a line into the sea or throw a net into the sea. You can get a boat, 
go out on the lake or on the sea and again throw out a line or a net. Some people will even sit for hours at the side of a canal watching a little float to see if it bobs up and down. Or you can do what my dad used to do and put your waders on and get in the river. He caught lots of trout, as I said earlier, and there was one occasion he did catch a salmon. Um, he had such a battle with the thing, once he got it on the line, it, it actually pulled him into a, a deeper part of the river and the water went over the top of his waders. So he had to drive home from about three quarters of an hour, sopping wet from here down. Uh, but it was a lovely salmon. Now, if I say it was that big, you won't believe me. It wasn't. It was about that big. And we were very proud. My mum didn't believe him at first. He staggered in all sopping wet and said, I've caught a salmon. She said, I'll go on with you. She said, oh, I've caught a salmon. Go and look. There it was in the boot of the car. Wonderful. Sometimes it's costly to catch good fish. As Christians, as kingdom people, I believe we've all signed up to be net throwers. Not sitting on the sidelines hoping for a bite. Who knows what kind of a miracle catch there could be as a result of your obedience or mine. In the last two Sundays, both Deborah and David Lyon had given us a clear focus as to how, a, how to go about sowing seeds and throwing nets. These are some of the things that they highlighted. The second mile attitude, the togetherness, the spiritual gifts, the hospitality, the generosity, the serving heart, loving God with integrity, and loving our neighbors with intensity. I'm going to finish by reading the little parable again, but this time in the message. Very often, it's more stark in the message than it is in some of the other versions. And it will remind us that this is serious stuff that Jesus was teaching and which we need to take on board. God's kingdom is like a fishnet cast into the sea, catching all kinds of fish. When it's full, it's hauled onto the beach. The good fish are picked out and put in a tub. Those unfit to eat are thrown away. That's how it will be when the curtain comes down on history. The angels will come and cull the bad fish and throw them in the garbage. There will be a lot of desperate complaining, but it won't do any good. Solemn words. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for all your teaching, whether it's through parables or other means. We thank you that we have the message written down for us, passed down the generations. And we want to respond 
to the challenge that your word brings. We want to be net throwers and seed sowers. And we ask, Lord, that you will show us day by day just how to do that. Little things or big things that we need to do. Ways of helping other people, challenging other people, showing compassion. We thank you, Lord, that there will be a day, as we thought already in this morning's meeting, when the king returns, when the beautiful bride is united with Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. It's a day we look forward to. We thank you, Lord, for the salvation that you've made available through Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.